Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Grace is Free, But It's Not Cheap. It's for the second Sunday in Lent, March 8, 2009. In his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, Brennan Manning describes a myth that flourishes today in our churches. It's the suggestion that Christian discipleship consists of one rousing victory after another. This myth has done believers what Manning calls incalculable harm because it misrepresents the way the Christian life is really lived. The myth goes something like this. On the journey with Jesus, I can expect an irreversible, sinless future. Discipleship will be an untarnished success story. Life will be an unbroken upward spiral toward holiness. Of course, personal experience debunks this myth as patently false, but many Christians still chase it as their standard, goal, or expectation. Thank God for Lent and for Mark's Gospel this week, which shows another way. Lent reminds us that the road to Easter resurrection zigzags through the valley of the shadow of death. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus modeled the way for us. After Peter confessed that he was the Christ, Jesus began to predict his death, much to the shock of his disciples who longed for a Savior who would vanquish the Romans. We read in Mark 8.31, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. In fact, Jesus repeats this prediction two more times in the next few pages, Mark 9.31 and 10.33. Resurrection would triumph, but not before suffering, rejection, and death. The disciples, who so often in the Gospels misunderstood Jesus and were afraid to ask him questions, got the message loud and clear. For Mark says that Jesus, quote, spoke plainly about this, end quote. He spoke so plainly that Peter rebuked Jesus. This can never happen to you. In perhaps the sharpest rebuke in all of the Gospels, Jesus characterized Peter's well-intended misunderstanding as satanic. A second shock then followed when Jesus insisted that this pattern of self-denying suffering was incumbent upon anyone who wanted to follow him. After predicting his own suffering, rejection, and death to the disciples, Jesus then turned to the larger crowd. If anyone would come after me, he said, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. God's grace is free, but it's not cheap because it demands everything. 
This is a high price to pay, Jesus admits, and the risk-reward logic should pierce your heart. What good is it for a person to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a person give in exchange for his soul? Mark 8, 36 and 7. There's a remarkably parallel incident to this gospel story in the life of Paul. Luke writes that Paul was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. When their ship landed for a short stay at Caesarea, a prophet named Agabus warned that the Holy Spirit had told him that if Paul went to Jerusalem, he would be bound and handed over to the Gentile authorities. And just as Peter rebuked Jesus, who had predicted the sufferings that awaited him in Jerusalem, Paul's companions begged him to avoid trouble in Jerusalem. But his rejoinder is instructive. We read in Acts 21, 8-12, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm not only ready to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. About a week after they landed in Jerusalem, Paul was in fact arrested. The first step toward his, his eventual martyrdom in Rome. Paul's post-conversion life imitates Jesus' model of self-denial and cross-bearing. When Corinthian believers demanded proof of his apostolic authority, Paul resorted to biting irony. You want proof? Then I will give it to you. I've suffered more hardship, suffering, weakness, persecution, conflict, beatings, imprisonments, sleep depravity, hunger, hard work, lashings, and shipwreck than anyone else. Three different times he tells the Corinthians, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Even his one moment of glory when he was caught up into heaven was accompanied by a thorn in the flesh. Paul boasts about his weaknesses, he says, because it is in those weaknesses that he most experiences the grace, love, and power of God. See 2 Corinthians 4, 7-12, chapter 6, 3-10, and chapter 11, 1-12-10. Jesus describes bearing your cross as a necessary part of discipleship. What does that mean? It's understandable that the world promotes self-indulgence over self-denial, but oddly enough, sometimes the church does too. Martin Luther made a helpful distinction when he contrasted a theology of glory with a theology of the cross. A theology of glory, said Luther, is characterized by a triumphalistic posture which seeks to know God only or especially through his mighty acts of power, through victory, miracle, and glory. If you pick up almost any popular Christian magazine, you'll find many examples. The book, The Prayer of Jabez, for example, promises, quote, a front row seat in a life of miracles, end quote. To use language of the Old Testament, this sort of mindset lives only for exodus and forgets about exile.
It's true that we read about God's mighty acts of power in both the Old and New Testaments. But it was Luther's great contribution to remind us that beyond all his mighty acts of power, God's ultimate act of love and self-revelation was through suffering on a cross. And so, a theology of the cross insists that we know the Father's love not so much through awesome miracles or startling outbursts of power, but through times of self-denial, suffering, testing, trials, and human weakness. The language of Jesus has, in fact, passed into our modern lexicon as a sort of joke when we tease about having to, quote-unquote, bear our cross. But Jesus meant to tell us something essential rather than trivial about life in his kingdom. Luke put it this way after describing an incident when Paul was stoned and left for dead outside the city of Lystra. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14.25 The early desert monastics said it a different way when they left us with a very wise aphorism. Expect trials until your last breath. Language like this is almost impossible to understand for Western believers in the so-called first world. But for the first 300 years of the church, it was the status quo. Lent reminds us that Easter's resurrection victory over sin, death, and the devil is certain and on the way. But the journey that Jesus took to Jerusalem passes through the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. And for further reflection, consider the place of self-denial in a culture of self-indulgence. Distinguish between healthy and unhealthy waves of self-denial and self-affirmation. Consider the meaning and implications of Martin Luther's contrast between a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. And finally, why do you think books like The Prayer of Jabez are so popular? For books this week, I review Brian McLaren, Finding Our Way Again, The Return of the Ancient Christian Practices, Nashville, Thomas Nelson, 2008, 216 pages. Christian renewal movements begin with the claim that the church has lost its way, and then proceed to suggest how we can revivify the faith. Brian McLaren wants to recast the faith as, quote, a way of life, end quote, that moves beyond the tried and true, tried but tired systems of belief found in what he calls militaristic scientific secularism, pushy religious fundamentalism, and mushy amorphous New Age spirituality. This fourth way will look backward in order to move forward. <coughs> in this introductory volume, 
McLaren sets the table for future books in a series devoted to the seven ancient practices of prayer, fasting, Sabbath, the sacred meal, pilgrimage, the liturgical year, and tithing. McLaren gravitates toward the idea of the kingdom of God as a movement and away from the church as an institution, which is a bit odd given that the ancient practices are distinctly ecclesial. As the founding pastor of the non-denominational Cedar Ridge Community Church in metropolitan Baltimore, McLaren is well aware of the distinction between kingdom and institution although he never addresses the inevitability and even necessity of institutions. Still, who has not resonated with the joke that Jesus promised a kingdom, but what we got was the church? Or with the conundrum of how we might bottle the lightning? Just as one would never dream of excelling in a sport or playing a musical instrument without hard work, so too the Christian way requires intentional practices for a lifetime, says McLaren. Some of these practices, he explains, are contemplative, like reading, Sabbath, or prayer. Others are communal in nature, hospitality, singing, or confession. And still others are what he calls missional, caring for the sick, helping the poor. In the last part of his book, McLaren gives general sketches of what he calls a common ancient treasure of the threefold way as found in both the Latin West and the Greek East. Namely, number one, the via purgativa or catharsis. Number two, via illuminativa or photosis. Number, photosis. And number three, via unitiva or theosis. McLaren shares liberally from his own Christian pilgrimage in a self-effacing manner and ends each chapter with questions for further reflection. Brian McLaren, Finding Our Way Again, The Return of the Ancient Practices. For film this week, I reach back 30 years the title of the film is The Song Remains the Same, Led Zeppelin in Concert, 1976. This is a mediocre movie, but Led Zeppelin was a great band if you like their headbanger heavy metal sound. When I saw that this live concert at Madison Square Garden took place in 1973, the year I graduated from high school, I thought a blast from the past would be interesting. But concert movies are tricky. In a sense, you get the worst of both worlds. You are not, in fact, present at a live concert, but instead watching it secondhand. And the quality of the music doesn't compare to the studio recordings we're used to from CDs. There's no narration in this film, and really no narrative to speak of. By today's standards, the technology is 40 years old. We really learn nothing about or from Led Zeppelin the band. But for those of us of that generation like me, it was still fun to watch a band that defined a generation 
and, by the way, sold 300 million albums with songs like Stairway to Heaven, Whole Lot of Love, Heartbreaker, and Dazed and Confused. Jimmy Page on what the film hails as, quote, the electric guitar, end quote, Robert Plant vocals, John Paul Jones bass guitar and keyboards, and John Bonham on the drums. The song remains the same, Led Zeppelin in Concert, from 1976. And finally, for poetry this week, in the second week in Lent, we've posted prayer, a prayer by Father Thomas Hopko from his book, The Lenten Spring, 1983. Lenten Prayer, Week 2. You manifested humility, O Christ, as the way of genuine nobility, by emptying yourself and taking the form of a slave. You did not hear the self-praising prayers of the Pharisee, but you received the broken sighs of the publican as a blameless sacrifice. Therefore, I too cry out to you, Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me and save me, O Savior. Thomas Hopko, The Lenten Spring, A Lenten Prayer. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for March 8, 2009, the second Sunday in Lent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.